All right, let's shift now into chapter 10. And probably many of your translations have titles for the chapters and so on. Perhaps your title and your, your now they're not inspired. Editors add that, but it's helpful as I am the good shepherd. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this as uh, by way of introduction. The idea of God as shepherd and Israel as sheep is throughout the Old Testament. That is a major theme. Again, it's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. But this idea, that this figure of God being the shepherd of Israel and Israel being sheep is throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, Isaiah 52 and 53, Ezekiel 34 would be three examples. But probably more famously, which I'm sure almost all of you are familiar with, is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's a psalm that even unbelievers heard of, have heard of Psalm 23. Now I'm saying that because as Jesus introduces this teaching in chapter 10, and he speaks of himself as I am the door, I am the good shepherd, that would have been very familiar to these people. It would have been, it would have been a metaphor, a figure of speech that they, they can understand that as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a parable, as a proverb, as a metaphor, as a figure of speech. That's a little more difficult for you and me to understand. Now, what I want to do here, I want you to look at um, this, this slide here. I think you all can see this. This is a drawing, obviously, but it's a drawing of uh, you still, and by the way, I mean, I've been to the Middle East many times in my life. You still see things like this when you're outside the cities, when you're in the desert area, when you're up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, up in the hills in the Golan Heights area. You still see things like this. And this is relatively small. They often were much larger. Let me explain a couple of things about this. This is a sheepfold, as the title indicates. And you can see at the door, the shepherd is sitting. Now keep that in mind for the, the language that Jesus will use here as we get into chapter 10. So he will speak of himself as the door, and he will speak of himself as the good shepherd. Now let me add something else about this. In these sheepfolds, if you are in a, and for the most part they're villages, but if you're in a village, there would be multiple shepherds, multiple people having sheep, multiple families, and they would all corral these sheep in this sheepfold. And so there would be, and they would kind of take turns, but there would be a person who had the responsibility for that night to sit at the door, to be the door, to be the watchman. But it's always fascinating, and this is true of sheep even today, when the various shepherds would come to the sheepfold, they would call the names of their sheep, and the sheep would respond to that shepherd and come out of the sheepfold and then go into the hills to feed for the day and so on. All of these things that I've just explained to you about the typical shepherd's life and the typical sheepfold and the basic arrangement of the sheepfold was very familiar with the people in the first century, and that's what Jesus is talking about. So kind of keep this mind picture now, because I'm going to 
get rid of this and go back to the text. But if, if, if you keep this kind of, oh, oh, yes, yes, I understand. This is what Jesus is talking about. And he's going to use this figure of the sheepfold, of the door, of the shepherd, and apply it to himself and apply it to them. Thanks, the other Jim, thing that really helped a lot. Um, and the other, good, the other thing about sheep that you, I'm sure you already know, sheep are not very smart animals. They are actually very dumb animals. And they will literally follow a another sheep even to their doom. Uh, they are not very discerning. And so when God speaks of us as being sheep, and he speaks of Israel being sheep in need of a shepherd, that's saying something about humanity. We will follow others. We will follow evil, even to our self-destruction. We need a shepherd. We need a good shepherd who will take care of us, who will guide us, who will lead us. If you are, if you are interested in a wonderful book that explains a lot about the Bible's use of shepherds, sheep, Psalm 20, it's actually a little exposition of Psalm 23. It's a book written by a man named Philip Keller. And um, I think the title of the book is The Lord is My Shepherd, but it's Philip Keller. Uh, he is a, a, a Bible expositor, but his, he also is a shepherd. And he lives in England, and he, he has as a shepherd, it's kind of a side business, so to speak. But it's in all his work with sheep that he sat down and wrote the book which gives an enormous insight into how God is talking about himself as a shepherd and how he's talking about in the Old Testament, Israel as God's sheep. And even here uh, for those <clears throat> who need a savior being the sheep, some will hear his voice, some will not, but it is really important. And I've, I've had a man who is a shepherd explain this to me. They know the voice of their shepherd, yeah. and they will respond to that voice. They will not respond to someone else's voice. Yeah. So all of this is a part of, of the language that Christ is using as we look at this. So let's go back yeah. now. Yeah. I have a question for you. You said Philip Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R. What's the name of the book again, please? Um, I think it's The Lord is My Shepherd. Okay. Or a sh or, no, no, no. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. A Shepherd's Look at the 23rd Psalm. I think that's the exact okay. title. Thank you. But it, it really is. A, it's an old book. It's an older book. It's several decades old now. But I, my copy is yellow and it's kind of fallen apart. But I've used it a great deal over the years because it is an extremely helpful book uh, on helping us to understand not only John 10, but Psalm 23 and many other places. Some of those. You know, I, I would just add to my, uh, my uncle had a lot of sheep and, um, and uh, down in uh, Missouri. And you're right. Uh, I mean, I could call him. It didn't mean anything. Yeah. But when uh, he called them, they came. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of the things about the chapter here, chapter 10 is that is really, really important. And I want to comment a little more on that. All right, well, let's begin with that introduction. Let's begin. Verse one, truly, truly. Now remember in the original, that's amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. 
He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, and just think of that image that we looked at a minute ago, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them, the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This, verse 6, this figure of speech, the actual Greek term there that is being used is pyroimion, parable, proverb. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. They understood the language, but they didn't understand the point he was making. What, what do you mean by this story, this parable, this problem? What do you mean by it? And so Jesus is going to have to further explain it in verse 7. But I want you to key in for just a, a quick second in, in verse 3. It, it's really a precious verse because Jesus is the shepherd. We are the sheep. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by his name by the name and sends them out. My wife um, looks at verse three as one of the most important oh, verses in the Bible, in encouraging her, in uplifting her, and reminding her, God knows my name. God knows my name. I wrote in my Bible, next to John chapter 10, verse 3, Isaiah 49, verse 16, where God says, I have your name written on my hand. Now, again, think of the awesomeness of Isaiah 49, 16. Think of the awesomeness of John 10, 3. God knows your name. That's how important you are. I don't know if you've ever read anything of Max Licato, but I, I like Max Licato. He's an incredible wordsmith. He just he has an incredibly imaginative and creative way of saying things. And one of my favorite quotes of him is that he said, God, God has your name on his refrigerator. In other words, you know, you think, I don't know about you, but our refrigerator has all kinds of old postcards and pictures and reminders and old cartoons. And, and Lakato is just, again, trying to take what Isaiah 49, 16, what John 10, 3 says, how important are you to God if you're his child? He's got your name on his refrigerator. He's got your name written on his hand. He knows your name. And the infinite omnipotent God of this universe knows you. And that is a that is a, a a fact that both the Old Testament I refer to Isaiah, the Old Testament, and New Testament just affirms over and over and over again. That's how important we are to God. So with all of that, I, I just love those introductory um, statements. So yeah, Jim, don't yeah. you don't you think that? I mean, sometimes when we get discouraged. Um, just to kind of remember that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just Absolutely. ask him, you know, yeah. Yeah. help me. 
No, absolutely. I mean, that's Jim, just this that, this again. Yes, and, and we are, but we're called just like the sheep, right? I mean, God calls us. Yes, He calls us by name, and we follow Him, Woody. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that again is is the point Jesus is making in these, and we follow Him. He calls us, and we follow Him. He is our shepherd, and if as long as we follow Him, we'll stay out of trouble. The moment we stop following him is the moment we go off the track. And that's what Psalm 23, that, that wonderful Psalm is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down green pasture. I mean, all those encouraging, fantastic statements. And the, the, the moment the sheep take their eyes off the shepherd, the moment the sheep follow someone else, then they're in trouble. The wolves are going to get them. By the way, I didn't mention this. But in the ancient world, and that is still true in, in, in Israel today, they don't use sheepdogs. Now, in Scotland, they do. In, in, in Normandy, in Brittany, in France, they do. But in the Middle East, they don't use sheepdogs. So that, again, is even more important why the shepherd. The shepherd is the key one. A shepherd, some shepherds use sheepdogs, which keep the, keep the sheep you know, together, keep them from wandering off. They don't use uh, sheepdogs over there, and they didn't in the ancient world. So the shepherd is the key point person for everything that happens to these sheep. They're going to rise and fall. They're going to live and die, depending on the shepherd. And so that's why what Jesus is saying, and again, keeping in mind that little picture I showed you a moment ago, you begin to understand where Jesus is headed with this. All right, let's look now, because they're saying, we don't get what you're saying. We understand your story, but we don't get the feet. What's the point? Jesus again said to them, verse 7, Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. On page 6 of your notes is a little chart, it's a PowerPoint that I use, of the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. We have already gone through a couple. I am the bread of life, John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. And here we are in John 10. I am the door. So again, go back to that little picture I showed you of a sheepfold. Jesus is the door. His body in, in the ancient world, in those little sheepfolds, the shepherd's body kind of served as a door, guarding and keeping and protecting. That's who Jesus is. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Yeah, All who came before me. Who, who is he talking about here? About whom is he referring? He said, All who came before me. False prophets, false teachers, false messiahs who promise what they can't deliver. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. And that takes you back to verse uh, 1. You climb in another way, you're a thief or a robber. Ezekiel chapter 34 speaks of those in terms of Israel who will be the thieves and the robbers trying to steal, trying to keep people from faith in the one true and only God. Now, you are probably going to suggest, as you're thinking about it, Jesus is also going to refer to the Pharisees as thieves and robbers. 
but the sheep did not listen to them. Why? I am the door of the sheep. And as he said earlier, the sheep hear my words. They, I call them by name. They follow me. So Jesus is saying, I am the door, but the sheep do not listen to the thieves and robbers. Verse 9, he repeats, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So here again is something we've seen throughout the gospel. We're going to see more of it. There is only one way to salvation, Jesus. There are not multiple ways. There are not multiple individuals, multiple plans. There's one. And Jesus is using the figure of the door entering the sheepfold, the only way he can get in. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out. Now, that little phrase, in and out, go in and out, I circled that because that's Old Testament covenantal terminology, Old Testament, Old Covenant phraseology, the phraseology of blessing, the phraseology of, of God blessing his people. So go in and out and find pasture. The abundant, fulfilled life is only found through Christ, is only found through the door, is only found through the door, who is the shepherd, who is Jesus. Now I believe they're starting to get it, because he's explaining it. In verse 10, the warning, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, the thief could refer to Satan, could refer to the false messiahs who are interested in their own self-elevation, not for helping the people. And so Jesus is just warning. The thieves have nothing but nefarious ends in mind, to steal, to kill, to destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Go back to the end of verse 9. Be saved, go in and out, and find pasture. That's the figure of speech of sheep and a shepherd. Now he broadens that, the application. The life I offer, the eternal life I offer, is a life that is abundant. That does not only mean, although it can mean that, the physical material abundance more importantly, the spiritual fulfillment, the spiritual abundance that comes through Christ, through his spirit, and through the eternal life and all the prom fulfilling all the promises that God has made to his people, his sheep. Woody had a question, I think, uh, <clears throat> Jim. Woody? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, it's kind of simplistic, but I, I wish I had a copy of that uh, sheepfold. Can you provide that with, to Glenn? Could you uh, send I, I, I think, Glenn, we can provide it, can't we? Yeah, I have a copy of it already. Uh, All right, he's already taken care of it, Woody. I, I can send it out. Thank you. So I, 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 Jim here, I'd like to ask a question about verse 9 when it talks about I am the gate, whoever comes through will be saved. Did the, uh, did the Pharisees, and the, I mean, did they think of salvation in the same way that we do, or is this a relatively new concept to them? Um, 
okay, we, I can answer this at, at, at two levels. So level, first level. Um, Jim, yes, in the sense that saved from the judgment of God, saved from, from Sheol, which was a Hebrew word they used to apply to hell, uh, saved from Sheol, saved from hell. So they had very much the idea, the concept, and the teaching. It is in the Old Testament of eternal life. And eternal life would be the opposite of damnation and judgment in Sheol. So the other aspect of that is as well, and it's especially in the book of Isaiah in chapter 40 through chapter 66, is teaching on the resurrection. Isaiah 49 teaches that. And also the new heaven and new earth. That's in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. So, Jim, they very much had the idea of salvation from the damnation and wrath and judgment of God, which means eternal life, a resurrected life in a new heaven and new earth. So, in that sense, when they would have heard Jesus say, if anyone enters my name, he will be saved, that is the grid through which they would process that. The, the salvation from the sin and judgment and condemnation of God and the eternal life through a resurrection that God promises us. Now, at another level, the complete, full-blown explanation, I think, for example, of Paul, of salvation involving justification, sanctification, and all of that, that would not have been as clear. That would, would not have been, they would not have had that, that precision of understanding. Um, so that you do have with the full teachings and writings of the Apostle Paul, for example, does that help answer your question, Jim? I don't know if I'm hitting the target. Yeah, no, you, you know, that's exactly the right answer. I mean, I was, okay. I just, I just, as I look back on the Old Testament, I don't see the word saved used in a way that you see it in the New Testament. And it's, it's more of a process of avoiding, you know, living, living by the, the, um, the law and therefore avoiding uh, damnation. And so. Right. Right. But, but here, I mean, as, as Jesus talks about it now, it's, it's more of an act. Yes. Yes. Okay, let's and move on. Jim, can I ask another question? Uh, yes. Um, you, you know, Christ had not um, been crucified, and therefore, at that point in time, he wasn't our Savior, even though, I mean, in fact, he was, he was always, he's always been our savior, but when he died on the cross and shed his blood, he shed it for the entire world. And including these Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, uh, can, I mean, these people weren't totally lost in the sense that they had full knowledge, did they not? I'm, I'm, I'm not want to give your answer. Uh, of who he was, and therefore they could have 
equal access to Jesus Christ, even as we have the entire Old New Testament today. Is that is that? Um, I'm, <laughs> Sorry, I heard all your words. I'm I'm trying to understand the gist of your question. I'm I'm not sure I'm getting the gist of your question. I, I mean, okay, they they their, their knowledge. And when you're saying they, do you mean the general population or do you mean the Pharisees? I mean the people we're talking about, these people right here that are doubting Christ and challenging him on every step. Okay, okay. Sure. I mean, um, you mentioned at the beginning, Christ's death, which of course we're not there yet in terms of his public ministry, but Christ's death is sufficient for all. He died for everybody. So he would die for the Pharisees and Pharisees and everybody else. But then I wasn't, that's what, yeah, I wasn't quite getting your question. I'm sorry. I, just, I, wasn't, I was hearing the words, but I couldn't get the question clarified. And you kind of, it broke up a little bit, and I didn't get all the words then. So could you restate the main question? I guess so the main can... question was that these Pharisees, Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they had an equal opportunity to come yes. to Christ as their Lord and Savior. Yes. That as we read here, they're written off. They still had access to God through Jesus Christ. Is that absolutely right? yes, absolutely. And they're and instead of embracing it and accepting it, they reject him, they reject his message, and their hearts are hardened to the point where from even some of the things Jesus will say to them about blaspheming the spirit, they're beyond hope. If they do not stop going down the trail they're going in their rejection and hardening court toward Jesus, uh, they're eternally damned. There's, I mean, there's no hope for them. That's exactly what he says. There's no hope for them. So did I answer? Did, did I get to the gist of your? Okay. Let's look at verse 11 then now. Think again of the, oh, uh, Glenn, I'm sorry, yes. What, one, one last question. So, yes, please. Help me with the, I'm confused, so help me with the confusion. You said here in verse 9 that Jesus is the, is the gate. Yes. And how do I draw that parallel with Matthew 18 and Peter being at the, the gates of heaven? It, it's, it is is Jesus the shepherd? Oh, don't 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 connect those. <laughs> don't connect that. I don't mean, that. well, I mean, um, it it's. I, I'm not sure what you are 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 saying with with Peter being the gate. I, that I'm not quite clear what you mean by that. Well, is Jesus at the gate, or is Peter at the gate? Well. More uh, well, Jesus is Jesus, and and you know I, I read from ESV, so the the term is door, but gate is the same thing. Jesus is the gate. In other words, and that's what he says. If you want to enter eternal life, if you want to have abundant life, I am the gate. I am the door, and it's only through me that you experience salvation. So it isn't so much a literal physical gate, your word, or door. It's Jesus. 
So the metaphor is, I am the door. The metaphor is the door is Jesus. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, is that... I, yeah, I understand it in this context of what we're reading and how it's flowing. Yes. But then how do you draw the parallel to Peter at the gates? Peter is the guy at the gate taking notes. Jesus is what makes it possible to walk through. Okay. Are well, you in the book? Yes or no? Yeah, but I'm, I'm even, I'm bothered by a little bit. Um, it is, um, it is not a teaching of the Bible that Jesus, excuse me, that Peter is at the gate of heaven checking off who's qualified to enter and who's not. That is an unbiblical teaching. Okay. And that's all I say about that right now. <laughs> as Forrest Gump said 21 and a half years ago when that great movie <laughs> Forrest Gump came out. Can I move into verse 11? Would that be all okay. right? Okay. Now, the Lord continues, I am the door, verse 7 and repeating that. Now, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Now, remember, they are synonymous because the shepherd, think of that sheepfold, the shepherd was like the door. He sat at the gate. You had to go through him to get in. So now he's saying, I am the door, which means I am the shepherd. But note, note the good shepherd. Now, that is very messianic in terms of the Old Testament language. Because Messiah, the son of David, the Davidic king, is compared to a good shepherd. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72, is one of the most important Old Testament passages which speak of the Davidic Messiah, the Davidic king, as a good shepherd. I'm teaching in one of my other Bible studies right now, I'm teaching the book of Judges. And the thesis of the book of Judges is, Israel needs a shepherd king who will nurture them in righteousness and justice. Who is that shepherd king? Well, following the book of Judges is the beginning of the monarchy. It's Saul. He isn't the one. He's a disaster. It's David. And David then becomes the archetype for the coming of the Messiah. And so that's why Messiah is called the son of David, the good shepherd. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, all of a sudden their ears prick up. All of a sudden they're shaking their head. Oh, here's another claim Jesus is making that he's the Messiah. And he is the Davidic king, the messianic son of David. And so that, that becomes very clear because that was what Israel longed for. And every single king, including King David, let them down. Every single king sinned, every single king, even the great reformed kings like Hezekiah and Josiah, they did things that ultimately undermined their rule and hurt the people. Jesus will never do that. Jesus will never let down his people. Jesus will keep his people to the end. Jesus will persevere with them to the end. Jesus will be their advocate to the end. I'm saying all those other phrases that the scriptures speak of with Jesus. So when he declares in verse 11, 
I am the good shepherd. He's shifting from, I am the entrance into the kingdom, to I am the shepherd king who is good, who will nurture you in righteousness and justice. And to prove this, next sentence, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That would have blown them away. Because the shepherd king, the shepherd Davidic king, was supposed to rule and reign in power. Here he says, I'm going to lay my life down for my sheep. That's Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. The servant of God dies for his people. So phase one of the messianic king is he dies for his people before he rules and reigns. So when they hear him say, I'm the good shepherd, Messiah, Davidic king, Davidic rule, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, in a sense, that's what the shepherds will do to care for the sheep, because they're so dumb, they're so wayward, sometimes he has to put his life in jeopardy to, 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 to save them from physical harm or from wolves or whatever. But Jesus is going way beyond, way beyond their understanding, or I should perhaps say their expectation of what the messianic Davidic king would look like. I'm the good shepherd. Ah, Davidic king, Davidic stuff. Yeah, got it. He lays down his life for his sheep. So you have this, this extraordinary statement that Christ is making about himself as the good shepherd. He was, verse 12, he was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. There's that verse that's a further extrapolation of verse 3, a verse that's so important to Peggy, my wife. I know my own, and my own know me. Now look, look at verse 15. Do not miss this. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Do not miss that. Underline that that the analogy between they know me, I know them, is the Father knows me, and I know the Father. The intimacy of the shepherd and the sheep is the intimacy of God the Father and God the Son. Now, men, that is absolutely stunning, what Christ is saying there. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. And the analogy, the comparison of that kind of intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep is the intimacy of God the Father and God the Son. I hope you by now are saying, wow, because I know we do not get excited about biblical truth in this Bible study. But that's one of those things that, you know, we don't say amen, we don't get excited, we don't jump up and down. But this is one of those passages where you say, wow. What an incredible revelation. So the intimacy and love of the Father and the Son, God the Father and God the Son, is the intimacy that the shepherd and the sheep enjoy. Jim, I have a question for you on this. And, and we do jump up 
and down. You just that's when we all these screens go black. Oh, but, okay. <laughs> that's just, good because most of the screens are black right now. They're so <laughs> just jumping that's up exciting. and down. All right. <laughs> but anyhow, um, they they chose uh, the uh, the Sanhedrin chose to ignore um, the Isaiah uh, Isaiah the book of prim primarily enlarged and they and then specifically the two verses you mentioned fifty two right. three absolutely and what why why did they do that I mean. I mean, what's can, is there any research or any study or any? Is they have a hardened heart or what was it? Yeah, Jesus says to them. We read that in John chapter eight. You are of your father, the devil. So that to me sort of seals the reason. They are they are citizens of the kingdom of darkness, and they re, they refuse to accept the truth that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the good shepherd. And that being a tool of the devil, being their father, being the devil, being in the kingdom of darkness, uh, they're not, not going to see the truth. They're, they're not going to accept it. It doesn't matter what Jesus says or what Jesus does. They will not embrace that truth. And so, I mean... In a sense, Fred, that uh, that's still where many human beings are today. It doesn't matter what you say, whether it's you and I or someone else says it, but anyway, it doesn't matter what you say, whatever evidence you present, however many books or however many passages of scripture you give them or whatever, they're not going to believe. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why, and here's the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, that's why the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit wooing, the Holy Spirit convicting. It is a supernatural work of God for any person to come to faith in Christ is an amazing supernatural work. Okay, let's, what time is it? Oh, goodness, it's after 1230 already. Okay, intimacy of the Father and Son is the intimacy of the shepherd and his sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Who are the other sheep? Gentiles. Because what Christ, and this is amazing, this would be amazing for these first century Jews in Jerusalem to hear Jesus saying this. The other sheep are the Gentiles. Because he is talking about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says that he says that in a number of passages. I am here to rescue the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But so many of Christ's miracles and so many of the miracles that he does and, and where he teaches is in Gentile territory. Caesarea Philippi, Tyre, Sidon, they're all Gentile cities. Some of the miracles that Jesus does are to people who are not Jews. And so already, already you see the evidence that Christ's message of salvation is beyond just the Jews. It's for everyone. Christ will die for everyone. So others are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my name. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Write down Ezekiel, uh, or rather Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. In the new covenant, 
Jew and Gentile are equal in new covenant blessings. And so what Jesus is saying, and this again is extraordinary for these people to hear this, that I am also seeking other sheep who are outside the fold of, of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to Gentiles also. And who will take the message to the Gentiles? Well, in terms of the, the book of Acts, it's the Apostle Paul. But then for you and me today, we're still taking the message to people who do not know Christ. But that one flock, one shepherd, Jew and Gentile, equal in new covenant blessings. That's the difference Christ makes. Jew and Gentile, equal in new covenant blessings. And so again, what, what Christ is saying here at, at this point, ugh, would have been mind-boggling, staggering for them to hear that. Continuing in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge I receive from my Father. Here again is that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that is going to happen. Why did the Father send him? What did the Father send him to do? To die for his people, to be resurrected. And so that's just an incredible preview. Jim, I have another question. I have another question for you. Um, did God raise Christ from the dead, or did Jesus, who was dead, raise himself from the dead? The book of Romans, the beginning of the book of Romans, says the Father raised the Son through the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are involved in the salvation work. So when he's speaking, uh, I have the power, it's the Trinity is one, actually, right? I mean, is that kind of how you're wrapping? Uh... Well, the, the authority, uh, the Greek word is exousia, the authority there is the authority of the triune God to complete the work of redemption. But it is the Father who sends the Son, who then sends the Spirit. Father sends Son, Father and Son send the Spirit. That is that dynamic, one essence of God made up of three persons, each who has a responsibility and a role to play in the redemptive plan. And Jesus is summarizing that, I don't think in a complicated way, but in a way that, okay, he has the far, but his authority to do his redemptive work, it is the Father who sends the Son. That's how Jesus is putting it over and over and over and over again. I'm doing the work of my Father who sent me. That's the two persons within the, the essence of God that makes up Trinity, and that relate. But remember, we read in John 19, 5, 19 through 24, that the Son never acts independent of the Father. They are mutually interdependent in accomplishing the work of salvation. Now look at verse 19 through 21. What's the response here? There was, again, a division among the Jews. And remember, in John's language, the Jews is, is largely the leadership. It's not every single Jew, but in effect, there's division. Jesus always calls his division. Many of them said, he is a demon. He's insane. 
Why listen to him? Others, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That takes you back to John 9, but it also echoes, echoes Psalm 146, verse 8, which is another messianic psalm. So some people are saying, look, the only conclusion we can reach is this guy's demonic or he is insane. The others are saying, wait a minute. He did a messianic miracle. He gave sight to somebody blind. He's been talking about that. He's doing it. Insane, demonic, oppressed people don't do that. So you, you see this division. Some people are reaching the right conclusion. Some people are rationalizing it. That's what's happening today. In the very famous essay of uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, on page 56 of Mere Christianity, he says, you cannot say Jesus is insane. You cannot say he's doing it. Nobody says what he says unless he is the Son of God. And so, I mean, it's just, it, again, it's drawing the line in the sand. You have got to make a decision. And you can either rationalize it and say he's demonic or he's insane or say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Something's going on here. Demon-possessed, insane people don't do what he does. And that's it. Now we're done with that. We'll see more and more of this. All right, now, uh, where are we? Let me start verse 22 in this paragraph to the end of the chapter. We will never get this finished today. But this section is heavily theological. Look at verse 22. We get the setting. At the time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It is December the 18th, A.D. 32. This is Hanukkah. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah, which celebrates the liberation of the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes on December the 25th, 170 B.C. It's a tremendous celebration. It's not a biblical feast in terms of the book of Leviticus. It's an historical feast that we call Hanukkah. Uh, I shouldn't say we, the Jews call it, the, the term dedication is Hanukkah. So to translate it, it's the Feast of Hanukkah, in English, the Feast of Dedication. And it's winter, because it's December, it's A.D. 32. Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. That means he's on the east side of Temple Mount, the side that's facing the Mount of Olives. So the Jews gathered around him. Again, the Jews are undoubtedly the leadership, members of the Sanhedrin, primarily, more than likely, the Pharisees, and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, now remember, Greek Christ is Hebrew Messiah. If you are the Messiah, tell us. Tell us plainly. Make it clear. Now, think about that for just a minute. All that Jesus has been doing, all that Jesus has been saying, all the miracles Jesus has been accomplishing, all the extraordinary things he's been saying and others have been saying about it, and they're saying, we're still not convinced. Tell us plainly. <laughs> Jesus answered, I told you, 
and you did not believe. So no matter what I say to you, in effect what Christ is saying, no matter what I say to you, you're still not going to believe. But he continues, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now that is an important point that I know you know, but I'm going to repeat this. The messianic works of Jesus are to prove who he is. The book of Isaiah says, you will know Messiah. He will heal the sick, give sight to the blind, give hearing to, 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 to the deaf. He will raise the dead, etc. Did Jesus do those things? Yes, he did do those things. So when Jesus says, the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, that should be enough evidence for you people. You shouldn't need any more evidence. Everything I have been doing proves who I am. The works of Jesus always validate the words of Jesus. So he continues, verse 26, but you do not believe. And here's this thing here. Because you are not part of my flock. Let's put it in the language of John 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. You do not believe because you're not born again. You do not believe because you've not been regenerated. You, you, you don't believe because you don't belong to me. You don't enjoy the intimacy that I talked about in verse 15. You are not part of my flock. Whose flock are they? What Jesus said in John chapter 8, you're part of the flock of Satan. You're in Satan's kingdom. So, I mean, verse 26 is a thoroughgoing indictment of these spiritual leaders. Now, remember, Jesus is not saying this to Caesar. Jesus isn't saying this to the Roman military governor that stayed in Caesarea. He's saying this to the spiritual leaders of first century Israel. What an indictment of them. You don't believe because you don't belong to God. <clears throat> my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus will not fail. Jesus' redemptive work will not fail, and those who belong to Jesus will never be lost. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father's given them to me, greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you can't snatch them out of my hand. You can't snatch them out of the Father's hand. There is no greater evidence of the security of the believer than those two verses. You belong to Jesus. You hear his voice. You know him. You follow him. He gives eternal life. He'll never perish. And Jesus will never fail to take... Jim, Jim does, that, does that mean that we're going to see Woody in heaven? 
even more extraordinary, we're going to see Fred Scott in heaven. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I couldn't let that go. Woody, I hope that was all right. I hope that was okay, Woody. That's fine. I'm going to be up there. He's my yeah. eternal brother. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> now, you know, yeah. That's kind of a cool thought because everything it is. It is. It's going to be in heaven. Yeah. We're eternal brothers. That's, I, right. I think that's just so cool. Anyhow, I'm, I'm done. Can I, before we break, it's quarter up. Can I please cover verse 30? Can I do that? It'll go a little over. Now, look, Jesus has been saying, no snatch out of my hand, no snatch out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, because I and the Father are one. Guys, underline that. Star it. Use a yellow marker. Put 17, 18, 19 exclamation points out. There, it's, it's a neuter. I are one. It's neuter. It's one in essence. Not person. It's the two persons in the one essence. What's our definition of the Trinity? God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. So Jesus is declaring, it's profound in verse 30, Jesus is declaring a clear definition of the nature of the Trinity. The two persons are one. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Exactly the same language. So Jesus, I mean, this is this is extraordinarily powerful. Why can Christ say, "No one snatches you out of my hand, snatches you out of the Father's hand," because the Father and I are one? The Greek word is hen. Father and I are one, one essence. It's the definition of the Trinity: one essence of three persons. Now, here he's not talking about the Holy Spirit; that comes up later. But it, it's, it's, it's a remarkable affirmation of Trinitarian theology. How can he say that no one will snatch you out of my hand, no one will snatch you out because the Father and I are one? Exactly. And so it's a statement of, of theological certainty that when you speak of God, you speak of one essence made up of three persons. The essence of God and the person's plural of God are not the same. One essence of three persons. And that this is a very important revelatory uh, declaration of the Lord in verse 30. Do you have that understanding? Yep. All right. I heard a yep, and I heard silence. So I'm assuming that everybody's got this. Uh, time check, Jim. You what? Time check. Okay. I better go here. It's 10 of, so I'm going to pray and uh, leave you with that, and we'll pick up with verse 31 next week. Father, we've dealt with some remarkable truth today as we heard the Lord Jesus Christ say, I am the door to the sheeple. I am the good shepherd. And now these remarkable words that the sheep hear my voice, they follow me. I lead them to eternal life. No one will perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of the Father's hand because Father and Son are one, one essence. Lord, that's a remarkable. It's complicated. It's kind of hard truth, but it's the truth of the nature of the Godhead. 
And this mystery of the Trinity is further clarified by things Jesus said. Lord, we see that you, you, Heavenly Father, you, Lord Jesus, you, Holy Spirit, are all inextricably mutually interdependent in accomplishing the plan of salvation. We thank you and praise you for that. I pray for these men, watch over them, care for them, use them. May they be strong men of faith, strong men of God who represent you well. I commit them to you in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm. See you next week.